Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, thank you. It is a privilege to be back with you. Um, I would have to say that you who were here last night are probably gluttons for punishment because you get me again. And uh, normally the second time I come and speak, it's all empty. Nobody comes back. But I appreciate you being here. As you may have heard last night, my grandfather was a missionary down in Ecuador, South America, was killed by the Waodani Indians back in 1956. Now, I'm not going to, to tell the story again, but I'm going to tell you what, what took place in the next chapter of that story. When my great-aunt Rachel, my grandfather's sister, right after my grandfather died, two years later, she moved in to live with the Waodani. She spent 36 to 38 years up until 1994 living with the very people that killed her brother. Her time was spent translating the Bible, specifically the New Testament, into the Waotadido language. There was one small problem with that. They did not have a written language. So first, what she had to do is she had to learn the language. Second, she now had to come up with how that language would look in writing. So she had to develop a language for that. And then she could finally translate the New Testament into the Waotadido language. That was completed in 1992. We went down and, and my family was a part of the dedication of the New Testament into a brand new language. It was an awesome thing. In 1994, when my great aunt Rachel passed away, she died with the very people that she had spent her life with. In fact, the last words that she said were not in English. They weren't in Spanish. They were in Waotadido. Many people would say that your last words are always said in your heart language. Her heart language was the people who she had given her heart for, her life for, the Waodani. Well, as is, happens in Ecuador, 24 hours from the time you die, your body has to be in the ground. My dad, when he heard that Aunt Rachel had died, he immediately got on an airplane and headed to the jungles. Well, down in Ecuador, right after the funeral, some of the tribes people came up to my dad and said, uh, Baba, that's his tribal name. I said, Baba, we say now that Nemo, Rachel, is dead. We say, you come and you live with us. And my dad said, no, it's not possible. I'm a businessman. I can't just drop everything and come and live with you. So they upped the ante a little bit. They said, Baba... We want you to come. In fact, Nemo, she said that you would come. So he used the number one Christian excuse. If you can't guess what that is, he said this. He said, people, I will pray about it. <laughs> well, his tribal grandmother, Dava, she looked right at the people. She said, people, I've already talked to God and I know that he sees it well. So surely they will come. Well, he struck out on that one, but he used the second best excuse that we could possibly think of. He said, okay, God sing it well, 
And Ongin Kamo seeing it well. That's my mom. See, he knew he had him on that one because my mom was back up in the States in Florida where we live. And they, he knew that even if they spoke the same language, they have no way to communicate to her. So he was 100% safe. He said, God seeing it well and only come will seeing it well. Surely we will come. Dawa immediately again, I think she had learned something from Aunt Rachel. Because Aunt Rachel was, if, you, if you've um, never read about Aunt Rachel, and I say this lovingly, she was the most stubborn woman that God had ever put on planet Earth. <laughs> Otherwise, she never would have been out in the jungles in the first place. Dawa had learned something from her. She said, people, only in Kamal being a God follower, if God sees it well, how can she see it any differently? So in 1995, my family and I, we moved down to the Amazon to really get an understanding of the Amazon and, and how remote a location this was. I'd like to tell you a little story. That's okay, right? If you say no, I'm going to tell it anyway. So yes. And I'd like to teach you something that I taught the kids this morning. And it's going to maybe take you out of your comfort zone just a little bit. But I think that's okay. I think we need to get out of our comfort zone. I'm going to teach you a word in Wow to Ditto. Okay? And now, now this is easy. This is about as easy as it gets. The word is yes. Now some of you who were here with the kids this morning, you know what this word is. Now here it goes. Can we do that? Now, everybody, I'm going to do it, and then I'd like you to repeat after me. Very nice. So, do you mind if I share a story with you? No! You have it all wrong and backwards, but I understand the heart in which you communicated it, so I'm going to tell the story. There was a group of college students... Uh, that wanted to come down into the jungles. And normally, every year, this is a group of college students from the state of Washington. These are from secular universities. And their professor had learned that there were some white people staying down in the Ecuadorian jungles. Now, they normally came down each summer for college credit, but they would go up into the northern jungles of Ecuador. But because there was a lot of Colombian guerrilla warfare taking place, they did not dare go into that same place. So because they heard of us, they got in contact with us. And said, would it be possible to bring our college students to the Amazon? Well, we were not there. And I'll share a little bit about that later. We were not there serving ourselves. We were there to serve the Waodani people. So it was not our place to ask or to tell them. So we simply asked, we said, people, Waodani means true people. What would you see about this? And they said, well, are there any God followers? And we asked the professor, and the professor said, no, out of 30 college students, there was not one single professing believer in the entire group. Well, when we told that to the Waodani, they were very excited. They said, that's just fine. You bring them here, and we'll show them how to walk God's trail. Well, anytime we would take a group into the jungles, we wanted to give them an authentic experience. So day one, they went from the state of Washington all the way down to the capital, Quito. Now, Quito is a valley 9,000 feet above sea level. That was day one, and that's a long day. Day number two, they would take a 13-hour bus ride down to the edge of the jungles to Shelmeta, where my grandfather was based. 
day number three. Now, we already have two long days, and they're not anywhere close to where they're going. Day number three, we drop them literally at the end of the road. This is several hours out into the jungle where the road literally stops. 7 a.m. Each student was allowed a 10-pound backpack. That's it. Now, we're smarter than that. We've done this before. So we decided we were going to fly the rest of their supplies in. And we left four of the Waodani to be their guides. Now, nobody spoke the same language. The Waodani spoke Waotadido. The, the North Americaners, they spoke English. There was no communication possible. But 7 a.m., they started off. We, we headed back to the, where the plane was, and we started carrying their supplies in. And we were going to meet them. Now, this trip was supposed to take, for a while to do, for one of the Waodani people themselves, this is about, because it was going back downhill, this is about a three- to four-hour trip if they were heavily laden now. Now, we're, I'm talking heavy by about 60 to 80 pounds. Now, the North Americaners, these college students, they only had 30 pounds, excuse me, 10 pounds apiece in a backpack. So this, is, this should be a cakewalk. So we figure 7 a.m., okay, maybe five, six hours at the most. Well, lunch time came, and in the jungles, if there's food, you eat it, and we weren't waiting for them, so we went ahead and ate. Well, then it started getting close to dark, and dark is 6 o'clock, and, and dark in the jungles where there are no lights, dark is really dark. Really, really dark. Well, 6 o'clock came, and they hadn't shown up, so what did we do? We ate again. Once again, if there's food, you're going to eat it. About 10 o'clock that night, after 15 hours on the trail, we saw some headlamps coming through the jungles, and we heard voices singing, We shall overcome. (laughs) When these college students made it down the airstrip, one came into the hut where we were staying, covered head to toe in mud and grime and nastiness, fell over flat and did not move until morning. (laughs) But we weren't there yet. Day number four, we ferried them about five minutes over to another strip where they would take an all-day canoe trip downriver. Now, these are wooden canoes that one time had been trees. So very uncomfortable, to say the least, because you're sitting on about a quarter inch of wood, maybe half an inch if you're lucky, on the side of this canoe for about eight to ten hours. Well, finally that night, we're getting to the camp where we're going to have this authentic Waodani Amazon jungle experience. We're sitting around the campfire, and one of the college students said, You know, when I was studying before coming down here, I heard of a group of people that lived in this area of the jungle who were extremely violent. In fact, they killed everybody. You don't think these people would know those people, do you? Well, we answered, um, yeah, these people are those people. As college students would have it, kind of with the roll of the eyes, she said, okay. And she's thinking, you stupid white missionary, you know nothing. She said, no, 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 you don't understand. These people were violent. I mean, they literally killed all the time. We knew that we couldn't convince them with words, so we said, why don't you ask anybody... My dad's age or older, where their dad is. And maybe that, will, that way they'll get some sort of understanding about the people that they're, that they're with. 
And so they went to the first person and said, where's your dad? And the answer was, Dube, which means already, indicating already dead. And then she went on to say how her dad had died by indicating where the spears had entered his body. Well, when she did that, this college student said, did she say what I think she just said? Yeah. Well, now it got real quiet. Now, if, now picture the jungles. It's dark. The jungle orchestra is beginning to, to rise up. Those are all the creepy crawly things that make noise in the jungles. And it's getting darker and darker. The only light is this small campfire in the middle of these people. They went on to the second person and then the third person. The fourth person, all saying Dube and indicating where their dad had died. Finally, they came to Ompura and they said, okay, this was the fifth person. Ompura had been one of the ladies, Minkai's wife, who had led this group into the jungles. Now, Ompura is very, very abnormal for the wow. She's very touchy-feely. I don't know about some of you ladies, but she's just hugging on all these kids for the last three days, just loving on them. That's not customary at all. They said, surely nothing traumatic could have happened to Ompure. They said, Ompure, Bito. So Ompure said, they came one day. They killed my brother. They killed my sister. They killed my dad. Then they, they went into the hut where my mom was nursing my baby sister. And drove one spear through the baby, through my mom, and into the ground. So she could not even flee and try to live. And then they took me and my other sister to be wives. Five for five. Well, then my dad said, you know, they killed my dad too. Six for six. At this moment in time, out in the middle of the Amazon, you could hear... A pin drop. There was absolute silence. 30 college students riveted on what was taking place. Absolutely silent and dumbfounded. They looked at my dad and said, Mr. Saint, his level of respect had gone up just a bit. They said, Mr. Saint, are we safe here? (laughs) My dad translated. And the Waodani, they howled with laughter. Think about this. These are people who a four-hour trip takes them 15. Their three days journey out into the middle of the Amazon, even if they knew their way, they would die long before. And if they went the wrong way, they're going to try to hit Brazil and they'll never make it. As the howling subsided, Dawa stood up. And she said this, young people. She said, if we did not follow God's trail today, going to sleep tonight, not one of you would wake up. And we would never think two times about it. I'll tell you why she had their attention. She said, but we don't follow our own trail anymore. We follow God's trail. God sent his son, Itota, that we know him as Jesus. 
to mark a trail, both with carvings and with His blood. So that when we follow His trail, when we come to the end of that trail, we will be where He is, where He's prepared a place for us. And she said, I ask you tonight, young people, which one of you will choose to follow God's trail? Out of 30 young people, one raised their hand. And Dawa clapped her hand. She said, I see that well because you leaving here, one day I will see you again. And she went on to lecture them for another hour and a half about, and she had their attention, I assure you, another hour and a half about their trail versus God's trail. Well, one of the things what we did while we were down in the Amazon is my dad is a pilot, very experienced pilot. All the, those of you who watched the, uh, the movie End of the Spear last night, they couldn't find a stunt pilot to, to do the flying in the movie who would be willing to fly in close proximity to a jet ranger helicopter and not just close to trees but actually beneath the tree level. So they asked my dad if he would do it. And uh, he prayed very quickly about it and about a split second later said he'd love to. So my dad did all the flying in the movie End of the Spear. Well, while we were down there living in the jungles, he also did a lot of flying because a, a two-minute flight by airplane is about the same as six to eight hours on the jungle trail. And so if somebody is sick, the airplane is a much better way to get them to where there was help. Our goal down there, we were invited by our family, the Waodani people. We were invited not to do things for them, but to teach them how to do things for themselves. It's, it's a principle taught in Matthew chapter 28. 28? Yes, 28 verses 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. The principle is not to go and do things for people. The principle is to go and teach them to do for themselves. See, the Waodani people, they wanted to not only do things for themselves, they wanted to be able to relate to the outside world and to teach the next generation how to follow God's trail. And it was a very difficult battle. So they said, okay, now which one of us will fly? Well, what we had done is we had done some research prior to going down to Ecuador and realized that just like in the United States, probably like here as well, if you want to be a pilot... You have to complete high school. Well, none of, the, none of the adults had ever gone to school, so that was out of the question. So what we did is we took down an ultralight airplane so somebody without a license could fly it. And we actually took it on the airline as, as baggage, if you can imagine that. Now, we had a connection. God worked that whole thing out. So we took an airplane on an airplane down to the Amazon. As we were putting that together in shell, the Waodani and my family. Another group of Indians came up, and what you have to understand about Ecuador is, in Ecuador, the Indians are the very lowest class of society. And within the Indian class, the Waodani are the very lowest class. So these are the lowest of the low in Ecuadorian society. Well, this other group of Indians saw the Wow building an airplane, thinking, surely if they can do it, we can do it too. And they came up to us and said, after you're done teaching them, can you do that for us as well? No, we're not here to help you. We're here to help them. That was what our answer was. And the Waodani themselves, when they heard the answer, they said, Baba, no, no. 
You coming here and teaching us together, we will go and we'll teach everybody everywhere. Out of that statement birthed the ministry that I'm here to talk about with you tonight. It's called ITEC. It stands for Indigenous Peoples Technology and Education Center. The goal of ITEC is to support the Indigenous Church with tools and technology. Not fitting them to technology that already exists, but creating technology that fits them, that will empower them to go reach their own people and other people with the gospel. Sounds kind of interesting. Sounds kind of new. Well, one of the things that the Waodani people struggle with is, is teeth. If you're 18 to 20 years old out in the tribe and you have more than two or three teeth, you're doing really good. Well, their teeth always hurt. And so sometimes what would take place is a dentist would come down from the States and he'd go out to the jungles and he'd spend a day and he'd fix a few people's teeth. Well, as soon as the tribe would hear that the dentist is in one of the villages, they would all go to that village. And while we were living down there, we heard that a dentist was in a, ne- in a neighboring village, so we went. The problem is, as we arrived there, the dentist was just wrapping up because he had to get back out and catch a flight back home. And the people made this comment, and they said, now that he is gone, he did fix a few people's teeth. But now, their teeth being fixed, our teeth hurt even more. It's true. So, the next time a dentist came down into the area, he asked my dad if he would fly him out. Because he wanted to, to go out and help these people that had killed the missionaries back so many years ago. And my dad said, on one condition. I'll take you out there if you teach them how to do it. Well, this is a dentist with many years of training, many years of, of college and university and practice. He said, okay, fine. So he went out and he let them hold the instruments. Well, after he had drilled one tooth, he headed up to our house, which house is kind of a loose term. It's more of a shack. It was on stilts about 10 feet off the ground because of the rain that happens down there. But he went up for a glass of lemonade. When he came back, he was shocked. One tooth was drilled, but there was another tooth that was drilled as well. And he called my dad over. He said, he said, Steve, he said, I thought you said that they don't know how to do dentistry. He said, somebody with dental experience has drilled this tooth. I'm a dentist. I have many years of experience. I know when I see a good dentist, somebody has done this before. Well, my dad asked and nobody would volunteer that it was them until finally Tamenta who was also the pilot, he said, yeah, that was me. Thinking that, you know, he might, this may not have been a good thing. Then we realized, you know, there are some simple practices that we can teach to even uneducated people. Now, these are very smart people. They just didn't have any formal training. So iTech started the iDent program. Over many years, what that is now is it's a portable dental operatory that can fit into a backpack. It weighs 30 pounds, and it currently is in about 37 countries around the world. This is used in areas where there are no dentists or where there are people who cannot either afford a dentist or do not have access to a dentist. And these Waodani people, they were taught, they learned how to fix teeth. Well, 
when that word spread, a group of pastors in India had heard that these people down in South America knew how to fix teeth. Now, in a Hindu country like India, particularly in this area, these pastors were being persecuted heavily in the name of Jesus because they would not cease preaching the name. Well, when they heard that Minkai could teach them how to fix people's teeth and they could go in and share the, the love of Christ by fixing people's teeth, fixing a felt need, and then they would have the opportunity to share the love of Christ, how God could fix not only their temporal, but also their eternal pain. They said, well, if Minkai can do it, we can do it too. So we took Minkai to India. Can you imagine this? Now, explaining to Minkai where India is, we had to tell him, now Minkai, the earth is round. He didn't understand. They said, no, how can that be? Because then people will just fall off. <laughs> we said, no, Minkai, this is just how it works. And so when we finally told him that he was on the bottom of the earth, he thought we were talking crazy. But he went and we spent a day and a half a day and a half of classroom training before these pastors, these ten pastors, were out actually extracting teeth of real people. A day and a half. Now, any dentist in the room, you're probably thinking this is crazy talk, but I was there. It happened. And we went, well, on, on the second day of actual clinicals where we were extracting people's teeth, these pastors ran into a problem. They started extracting a tooth, but they couldn't quite get it. They had cut and severed a lot of the ligaments in the gum, but the teeth, the tooth just wouldn't come, uh, wouldn't come loose. So they called the dentist over, Charlie Vitito of Louisville, Kentucky. He's a training doctor, the training dentist that goes with us a lot of places. And he said, uh, Dr. Charlie, we can't get this. What are we doing wrong? Well, he called us over. He said, hey, he said, this is beyond me. Normally for an extraction... I'm going to send them to an oral surgeon. This is way beyond what I would do. He said, I don't know what to do. So then we called Minkai. Grandfather Minkai over. He was in his 70s at this point in time. Feathered headdress on and everything. And he came over. And with hands, he, he put his hands, gentle and caring hands, on this individual's face. And he began to pray. And then he saw that the other, these um, doctors in training had gloves on. So he said, hey, I might as well have gloves on too. And so he put the gloves on and he started going to work. Gently, gently, gently working on this lady's mouth. And after about five minutes of just ever so gently working that tooth, the tooth came out. All the roots intact. Now, if you think that's, that's something amazing, it is. Because you know, if you look at the stories that God writes, here was a man, these same hands were used 50 years before to brutally murder my grandfather and his friends. But you see, this was... Externally, he looked very similar, but he was not the same person. Because God promises that when we turn our lives over to him, he says, old things are passed away. All things 
or become new. Minkai was not the same man that he had been because God had changed him from the inside out. If Minkai was here tonight, you would never believe that he had ever killed anybody. He has the biggest artificial smile in the world. You can buy one too. He has good dentures. He is a loving man. He is a caring man. And he taught these men. He gave them hope because if Minkai could do it, they could do it too. He taught them in person how to do something like dentistry. That's not the only thing that iTech is in. I'd like to share one brief one more. Uh, that's called the iDent program. There's another program called the iFly program. This is the flying car. Now you may think this is like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang if you've ever seen that movie a long time ago, and it very much is. iTech develops technology that's used for rural areas to empower the local church, the indigenous church, to reach their own people with the gospel. I'm not going to go much into the flying car other than to say it goes 90 miles an hour over the land. And if the road is out, the bridge is washed over, you put out the parachute, engage the prop instead of the drivetrain. It's very intuitive. You don't, know how to fly. you don't need to know how to fly an airplane to fly this car. If you want to go higher, you push the gas pedal. If you want to turn to the right, you turn the pedal to the right, or the, the wheel to the right. It's very intuitive. You know, I'd like, to, I'd like to close with a little bit of a challenge. Tonight is, the title is Loving God, Loving Others Through Sacrifice. You know, that's a word that's never sat very well with me. I think a lot of times from outsiders, from people who are not um, engaged in the mission, a lot of times, or engaged in missions, a lot of times things that we do look like sacrifice. Say, man, you're sacrificing, you're giving up so much. But I would say this, that if you talk to a missionary, if you talk to them when they've been on the field, it's not a sacrifice, it's a privilege. I'd like to read an excerpt from the book End of the Spear. This is from my grandfather Nate's journal. Just a few days before he went into the jungles never to return. And I hope you get the heart behind this. He wrote this. Would that we could comprehend the lot of these Stone Age people who live in mortal fear of ambush on the jungle trail. Those to whom the bark of a gun means sudden mysterious death. Those who think all men in all the world are killers like themselves. If God would grant us the vision, the word sacrifice would disappear from our lips and thoughts. We would hate the things that seem so dear to us. Our lives would suddenly be too short. We would despise time-robbing distractions and charge the enemy with all our energies in the name of Christ. May God help us judge ourselves by the eternities that separate the Alcas from a comprehension of Christmas and Him who, though He was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we might, through His poverty, be made rich. Tonight, I'm not calling you to sacrifice. I'm not. 
I'm asking that you would ask God to grant you the vision of a world that is beyond this town. A world that is beyond this country. A world that is so desperate for Jesus. Even though they don't even know it yet. If God would grant you that vision, you could not get involved enough. You could not go enough. You could not give enough. You certainly could not pray enough. People would not have to stand up here and say, will you pray for us as we go? Will you support us financially? They would come and before they would utter a word, you would say to them, how can we support you? We will certainly pray for you daily, weekly, monthly. What do you need? How can we help? How can we get involved? Romans 10 shows us that there is a part for every single one of us to play in the mission, in the great commission that God has given us to reach people everywhere with the gospel, to teach them to do what we've been taught to do. Would you be willing? Would you be so bold tonight that you would ask God, God, grant me the vision. What part do you want me to play in the mission that you have for us? Show me what it is I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Write your story with my life. It's yours completely, entirely. I think Jim Elliott summed it up like this. He said these words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. Did you get that? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. People tonight, as this mission conference closes, would you be willing to ask God to grant you a vision that is bigger than you? A vision that you cannot do alone. A vision so big that only through the power of Jesus Christ can it get done. Because then, do you know what? When we ask Him to do that, then all the glory, it doesn't come to us, it goes to Him where it rightly deserves to go. Would you ask Him to grant you that vision tonight? He wants to. He wants to write His story with your life. Thank you. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.